Now we're going to read from the scriptures this morning. We're reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, through chapter 5, verse 2. Ephesians four twenty-five through 5, verse 2. I'm going to back up just um, to verse 20 to give a little bit of context. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. What is good that he may have something to give him who has need? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This is the word of the Lord. What is it that marks true Christianity? When, when true, real Christianity has actually taken root and, and is starting to grow, what will you see? What, what does it look like? Will, will you see some kind of consensus about a body of, of spiritual teachings? Is, is that what you see? Like a, a doctrinal statement that, that arises? Well, Christianity does hold a distinct core of beliefs, but, but will you see, maybe this is what you'll see, will you see people who are, are energized and, and they're energized about political analysis, or they're energized about political efforts, is that what you see when, when true Christianity has, has taken root? Or, or maybe with, with Christ, true Christianity, will you, will you just see a bunch of people who, they've got everything pulled together. Their lives are pulled together. They're financially pulled together. Their family is, is all pulled together. They're, they're, they're not messy. They're, their careers are pulled together. They're, they're on, on the way up. Emotionally, you, will you just see people who are just pulled together? They just don't have problems. Well, this chapter tells us that true Christianity, true Christianity, it shows itself in the interpersonal relationships in the congregation. True Christianity will produce a community of people 
who are marked by kindness and by self-sacrifice. True Christianity produces a community of people marked by kindness and by self-sacrifice. Now, sometimes it's true that people who are in the world of Christian practice, Christian teaching, sometimes people in Christianity, they, they get swept up in, in, in the heady aspects of the faith. They, they, they maybe they start to plumb the depths of the writings and the books and the, and the systematized theology, and, and, and their shelves are filled with riches of, of doctrinal treasures. And that can all be good, but if your marriage, if your home, if your friendships and, and your place in the congregation, if it doesn't bleed kindness and self-sacrifice when it gets pricked, something's missing. Are, are you familiar with, with that type of person? Are you perhaps too familiar with that kind of person? When we last looked at this text, Ephesians 4, Paul, back in verse 22, Paul said, put off your old self. Put on the new self. Put on the new inner person that was created when you first came to know Christ. Put it on. Now, Ephesians is a book full of theology. The theology of Ephesians is true. But has it taken root in you? Has the information taken over more than just your mind, more than just your head? Has it taken over your heart? The theology of Ephesians means nothing without the transformation of Ephesians. And so we see three things in today's text. First of all, we see what to put off. What to put off. Then secondly, we see what to put on. What to put off, what to put on. And then thirdly, how we experience lasting change. Now, let's start with what to put off. Earlier, verse 22, Paul says, put off the old self, Put off the old person. And then here in verses 25 all the way through 31, Paul gets very specific about what needs to be eliminated, what to eliminate from your behavior and from your heart. Paul lists six six things to put off. But as we go through these six things, I want you to notice that they largely involve our relationships, our relationships specifically even in the church community. And so that means Christianity It has something to do with information. It does have something to do with information. And it has everything to do with how you treat people. It means Christianity has something to do with doctrines. It does. But it has everything to do with your relationships. And so the expectation is that you will be in relationships in the community of believers. So what are these things to to put off? Well, first of all, verse 25, it says put off lying. Put off lying. And that's, that's simple to understand, isn't it? Tell the truth. Tell the truth when you speak, when you write. It's a quotation here from the Old Testament, from Zechariah 8.16. The context there in Zechariah is, especially when something serious comes up in the community, when something serious, serious enough that maybe there's a, a judgment from the community that's required. Maybe there's a question about about leadership, a question about leadership abuse. Maybe there's some, a, a public marriage breakup. M- maybe there, there are disputes between members of the community. There's a promise, there's a trust that's in dispute. What he's saying here is tell the truth about it. Tell the truth when you speak about it. Don't lie. Don't lie about serious matters. Don't lie about lesser matters. 
Well, why? He says in verse 25, for we are members of one another. For we are members of one another. He's he's tying this to earlier words back in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. You recall he said that the believing community, church, the believing community, it's the body of Christ. And every person is a different part of that body. Someone's a neck, someone's an ear, someone's a foot, someone's a, a knee. Every person is a different part of this one living organism, the body of Christ. And so a lie, what he's saying here is a lie, when you tell a lie, it harms the inherent unity of all those parts of the body. It, it cuts into the body of Christ. It's, it's a form of, of self-harm on the body of Christ. Because you're a part of the body, and when you tell a lie, it, it hurts the whole. And, and that means the lie hurts yourself, too. And so when a person spreads a false report about another person, maybe, maybe says something like, oh, that person, she's, she's rebellious. Or, or that person, he's, he's a glutton. And it's a lie. It's a false report about them. You're hurting the church. You're hurting the people who hear, the people that aren't directly involved. And you're hurting yourself. James 2, it says, do not speak evil of one another. Do not speak evil of each other. And so what we're being challenged with is how do you describe the other people? in your life? How do you describe the other people in in your community? How do you describe them? How do you describe the people in your community who frustrate you? And there always will be. If If you're starting and if you're entering into any real relationship with the people here, if you're entering into a relationship that has any depth, you are going to have things that frustrate you about other people. How do you describe them? How how do you describe people who have flaws and who have who do have sins and you see it? How do you describe them to others? So be, be warned. We, we're members of one another. When you speak unfavorably of that man, that woman, that child, you're speaking harm to yourself when you lie about them. You speak harm to Christ when you do that because it's, it's his body. Those people are parts of his body. Now, secondly, verses 26 through 27, it also says to put off anger. Put off anger, he says. Be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And so the Bible is clear as you read through it. There is righteous anger. For instance, Psalm 4, 4, it says, God, who has no sin, God is angry all the day at the wicked. And so the anger of God is righteous. And, and really, the anger of God, it's one of the great comforts of Christianity. God's anger is actually comforting. Why? Because the world is filled. Your life does encounter evil and injustice. And, and wicked people, they get away with things. Large scale, there are corrupt leaders who have gotten away with a lot of bad things. A small scale injustice, someone dents your car and they don't acknowledge it, they don't pay for it, you end up having to deal with it. But God is not mocked. What you reap, you will sow. What's done in the secret of darkness will be brought into the light of day. Evil should offend you, and, and there's something in you that's missing. If, if things like, like the shootings in Buffalo, the shootings in Jacksonville, if they don't stir in you a righteous anger, and you say, God, something needs to be done about that. 
But righteous anger can also become unrighteous anger. And we're warned about that here. Righteous anger can become unrighteousness. He says, be angry and do not sin. Years ago, there was a a minister in our denomination, a PCA minister. He was angry. He was angry about abortion. And he acted on that anger to the point that he deliberately killed abortion providers. That minister became angry and he sinned. And you know how that goes. You, you yourself, maybe you get angry at someone. They, maybe it's something minor. They left something out, and it's driving you crazy. And you've asked them not to leave their junk out. And the room is a mess because of them. And you have to live with it. Or, or they are running late, and they have made you late. And they know how, it is, how that's important to you. Or they didn't keep their word to you. And so anger boils up in you. And, and your, your expression, your countenance darkens. And you, maybe you verbally lash out at them. Maybe you, you lash out with hot anger. You burn them with your words. Or maybe it's not hot anger, it's cold anger. You just clam up. It's cold contempt. You're angry, but you sinned. Now it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That means the energy of your anger, whether it's righteous, whether it's unrighteous, the energy of your anger, it needs to dissipate before the next day. The fire and the fury that's in you, it must die out before tomorrow. And I've known plenty of people, myself included, I've known plenty of people who can keep that anger burning for days, for years, like 15 years ago. That man, that woman, they called you a name. They, they shamed you. They, they spread a story about you. And today, 15 years later, you still nurture that burning anger over their words. It's a very dangerous place to be. Verse 27, it says that nurturing anger, it gives place to the devil. He's saying anger, unlike wine, it doesn't get better as it ages. Aged anger is the devil's door. It seeks to, he's seeking to tear apart congregations. And when you remain angry with someone, you've set off the clock on a bomb that's just ticking and waiting to go off. And so you you need to get help. You need to get help. You need to be free of that. Now, I I can't tell you how many people do things in their anger, and then, and then, they live their lives filled with regret for the damage they did, the damage that they inflicted when they were angry. Regret, filled with regret over how the devil used their anger to poison the well that they have to drink from and that the whole community has to drink from. Now, thirdly, we, we put off anger. Thirdly, verse 28, put away theft. Put away theft. He says, let him who stole steal no more. Maybe he's talking to these people. Maybe, maybe they were people. Maybe you're, you're someone who used to cheat on your taxes. Maybe you used to cheat on the reimbursements that you filed for at work. Or maybe it's this kind of theft. You, you, you used to pirate Games, movies, music, or maybe it wasn't goods that you stole. Maybe you stole credit. You stole glory. You grabbed recognition instead of sharing honor with the rest of the people who deserved it. You used to steal, but now you're a Christian. And he says, steal no more. Instead, he says, rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give. Instead of grabbing, something to give to him who has need. Two priorities that he sets out there. He, says, he sets out diligence 
And he sets out care for the poor. Diligence and care for the poor. Diligence. He says, let him labor. Working with his hands. He's saying, do honest work. Do even manual labor. Sweat work. The kind of work that happens where there's no air conditioning. And it's noble. It's good. Do that. And, And he's saying, keep at your studies. Whatever your student, keep at it. Keep at your job. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, and not for men. That's diligence. But then the second priority is the care of the needy. That's also now our priority. We're to be diligent. We're also to have care for the needy. Because once we lived just to accumulate. Our houses were just the warehouses where we put all the stuff that we were buying. We lived to accumulate for ourselves, even, even stealing, even cheating. But now, he says, work diligently. Not for your own enrichment, though, but so that you have something to give him who has need. Now, the care for the needy, it's, it's not just here in this one verse. It's a big priority in the Bible. For instance, James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. 1 John three seventeen. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? Here's a definition of of what it means to care for the needy. It means you give your stuff to people who need stuff. You give your stuff to people who need stuff. He's saying here, maybe this could be your, your, your mentality. Once I used to take, once I used to steal for my own gain, now I'm willing to work and I have a heart for people in need. And we have people in need. Here, in the congregation here, in the community. And isn't it a joy when you actually have something that they need, something that can help them? Maybe it's a stroller. Maybe it's a ride. Maybe it's even a place to stay. And it's a joy and a delight when you can help someone in need with your stuff. Fourthly, we're to put off hurtful words. We put off hurtful words. Verse 29, he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Now, the image here, it's a contrast. It's a food image. It's a contrast between rotting food and wholesome food. Rotting food, like the kind of food you would find maybe on a a 90-degree day in the dumpster behind the restaurant. And if you can imagine the smell of the dumpster of a cafeteria on a hot summer day, the smell of the putrefying food in the trash, the maggots, if you ate anything from that dumpster, you would get sick. Some of our words that we say to one another, they're rotten like that. They're harmful like that. I have to say, I've mentioned this before, with her permission, one of the most helpful and one of the most pivotal times in my relationship with my wife, in my marriage. We were maybe 20-some years into our marriage. So you think, okay, 20-some years, you've got basic things figured out, right? One of the most helpful, pivotal times for me was when my wife asked me, why are you so mean to me? My words to her had been, they were, they were dismissive. They were hurtful. And she was right, and I needed to hear that. The words that we speak to each other, they have the ability, they have the ability to make people into masterpieces. 
The words that we speak to one another have the power to inspire people to become the best versions of themselves. But your words also have the power to deeply wound someone. And some of the things that you've heard, they've stuck with you forever. They've tripped you up. Someone threw shame on your parade and it's lasted a lifetime for you. Here he says, only speak what is good for building up, for edification. Impart grace to the person when you speak. Impart grace by your words. And so measure it. Measure your words. Parents, when you speak to your child, does, does your correction speech, which has to come, does correction speech sometimes go overboard and become corrupt speech? If that's so, confess it to them. Repent of it. Ask for their forgiveness. Husbands, when, when you speak to your wife, when you're displeased and you speak to your wife, do you crush her with your words? Do you embarrass her instead of honor her, as it says in First Peter? When we speak, God weighs every word. And so we're called to weigh the effects of our own words. Is the effect of what you've said, is the effect on the person that they now feel blessed, is the effect of what you said that the person feels built up? Now, I'm not asking about your intention. I'm not asking about your intent. I'm asking about impact. I'm not asking what you intended to do when you said that. I'm asking what was the impact of it? Because people will say, we say, well, my intention was good. I wasn't trying to be hurtful when I said, oh, you're late again, when I said it that way. Or when I said, you're always running behind. Can't you get it pulled together? It wasn't my intention to be hurtful. Don't tell me about your intention. Tell me about the impact Did your words and your tone impart grace to the person? God notices when our words wound. And so he says in verse 30, do not grieve the spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, it says that every word that we utter will be heard, will be weighed, will be scored. Matthew 12, Jesus says, but I say to you, that for every idle word that people speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And that's a warning about words. And, and so he says here in verse 30, consider the grief that our words can cause. It says, when we wound with our words, it grieves the spirit of God. It's saying God sees every single tense conversation that you have. God's there in the car. God's there in the room. He's there when there's there's a frosty silence. And he's grieved when he hears harmful words. Now, why would God grieve? Why would it not be that, well, God's anger, his indignation gets kindled when he sees the hurtful words? God grieves because he feels for the wounded. God has a tender heart to those who are crushed and pierced and rejected. So we're to put off these harmful words. Then fifthly, we're to put off toxic hatred. We're to put off, we must put off toxic hatred. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, loud quarreling, and evil speaking 
be put away from you with all malice. And so bitterness, we must put off bitterness. Bitterness is, is, is that, that, that inner conversation we have that says, I cannot let go of what you did. I cannot get over how you failed me. That's bitterness. Wrath and anger. It's, 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 it's when we're, we're, we're thinking and saying, you offend me. Your language and your behavior enrage me. Is there someone like that in your life who, who provokes that in you? They, they disrespect you. They, they demand too much from you and they're always demanding more. They disappoint you. And so you have wrath. You've got anger against them. We're also to put off this, this clamor and this loud quarreling, he says. That means if there were kids in the room, they would hear the arguments. That means if there were neighbors, then the windows were open, the neighbors would hear the arguments. You're, you're one step away from throwing things. You're one step away from throwing punches. And then he says to put off evil speaking and to put off malice. That means you wish, you wish something bad would happen to the other person and you would be glad if it did. You would be glad to see their downfall. Now these are all things to be put off. The old person. Now let's look at what to put on. Verse 24, it says to to put on the new person which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, what's this new person we're to put on? What's the new person like? Well, first of all, he says in verse 32, he says, put on kindness and tenderness. Put on kindness and tenderness. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Now, what's, what's kindness? What is kindness? I almost wonder if kindness is something in this place and time, in the world, in our culture. I almost wonder if kindness is, is disappearing and people won't even know how to define it. It, it almost seems like you, you never see kindness in public discourse or in online discussions. I mean, think, think about the prominent people, the people that are always put forward, that are on the screens, whose, whose recordings, whose interviews are out there. Think of the prominent people and why are they the ones who are raised up? Why are they the ones who get to talk and we have to listen? Well, it's usually not because of their kindness. It's, it's because they're wealthy or it's because they've got a fighting spirit and they're going to fight and destroy what needs to be destroyed. Or, or it's because of, of their, their sexual successes. But it's not because of their kindness that they're put forward to admire. And, and you know, the, the absence of kindness today, I, I think even towards children, we, we don't see much kindness when, when we go out in public. And I wonder, maybe, maybe one of the last places that we do see kindness these days in this culture, maybe it's towards animals, Maybe people still show, they seem to consistently show kindness towards creatures, towards pets, towards other people's pets. We live in days of outrage, plenty of anger and outrage, and and a lot of it's warranted. People are doing and saying terrible things. But the shocking thing here that's brought out in this passage is how God treats deplorable people. Romans 2, 4 says, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. That means God is kind to terrible people. God is kind to people who need to repent, to people who need to stop doing what they're doing. God is kind to them. God is, it says in Romans 2, 4, God is rich in goodness 
in forbearance and long-suffering to people that need to repent. Jesus himself describes kindness, and he sounds utterly like anyone else. Romans 2, 4. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Be kind to people, he's saying. Be kind to people who have wronged you. Be kind to evil people. Be kind to people who use you. Now, there's a caveat. If you're being abused, you need to speak up. You need to get out. You need to call police. But you can do all of that with a heart of shocking kindness. And, and the context here is church, community life among the people who have the same faith. As you live in church, you will see more and more of the real person, good and ill. And when you see the ill, when you see the warts, the weakness, the ugly, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Will you be kind? Will you be kind to the person who really needs to be in anger management program? Will you be kind to the person who is so self-centered and they're short-tempered? Will you be kind to them? Verse 32 says also to to put on tender-heartedness. Tender-heartedness. That means you hurt when the other person hurts. If they are down, you're down too. If, if they're anxious, instead of like rebuking them and telling them, you shouldn't worry, it's wrong to be anxious, you almost feel the worry with them as well. You hear them, and, and when you hear from them, it moves you. Why is it that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus? Jesus wept because his friends were weeping. Jesus is tender-hearted. Can you cry with and for the people here who are crying. Well, next also, there's, there's kindness, there's tenderheartedness. Next, we must forgive. Verse 32, he says, forgive one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness means you wronged me. It recognizes wrong. You wronged me, but I hold nothing against you. You wounded me. It recognizes that the other person did you harm. You wounded me, but I won't wound you in return. Forgiveness means I won't make you pay for it. A number of years ago, one of our presidents, while he was in office, he was caught cheating on his wife. And it was it was an abuse of power, it was an abuse of the public trust, and it was it was unfaithful to his wife. And his infidelity, it sparked many conversations across the nation. And the House Majority Leader at the time said that if he had been president and he had acted that way, he wouldn't have had the chance to resign because he would be lying in a pool of his own blood, looking up with his wife standing over him, asking, how do you reload this thing? That's what he said. Here's how God forgave us in Christ. When we depart from him, when we are in sin, when we're unfaithful to him, He always will take us back. When someone sins against you, and they will, when someone sins against you, will you forgive? Will you forgive as God has forgiven you? He forgives all our sins. He does not bring them to his remembrance, it says. Will you forgive everything done against you? Will you actively 
Keep them in the past, not bring them to your remembrance. Now, there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. We need to say this. Sometimes people do evil, and even though we have truly forgiven them, we've fully forgiven them, we still don't trust them, and that's okay. It doesn't mean you haven't forgiven them. It's, it's the difference between forgiveness and trust. It is wise. It is necessary at times. For instance, if someone embezzles from your company, you can forgive them, but you can't trust them yet. You shouldn't trust them yet. It would be years, if ever, before you could put them back into the same position of financial trust and access. But you can forgive. This is the third thing that we put on. There's forgiveness. He also says put on love. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Be imitators of God as loved children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And so he calls you to love, to love this way, to walk in love, to love your friends, to love your family, and to love your enemy, to love the people who are in this room, to love the people who are in this room who frustrate you, who fly up your nose. And maybe, maybe you say, but I don't like them. But I don't like what they do. I don't like the way that they act. I don't like it when they talk that way. I don't like them. I don't love them. Well, what did the love of Christ look like? Here's one tangible expression of his love. He ate with the people whom he loved. He ate with them. Isn't that how they accused Jesus? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. Whom do you eat with? Whom do you eat with? After, after the service today, we're going we're gonna to eat together. Whom are you going to eat with after today's service? Who, who's, over the course of the week, who's coming to your house for a cookout? Whom do you invite for coffee or for lunch during the week? Now, if we're honest, when we hear all this, all of this is a really big ask. Because there are some people that we don't forgive. And there are some people, honestly, we don't love them. What they did, it's just too much to be asked to forgive them. The way they act, it is just not possible to love them. How are you going to love someone who lies about you and is continuing to lie about you? How are you going to forgive someone whose anger keeps breaking out on you and they say, oh, oh, will you forgive me again? How can you love someone who steals from you? Someone who's always taking, never giving. How can you, how can you forgive someone whose talk is always toxic? How can you stay in relationship with people like that? How can you become kind and forgiving and love people like that? Well, let's close by looking at how we experience lasting change. How do we experience lasting change? I don't know if you noticed it, but, but the text is doing this. The text is telling unforgivable people, it's telling unforgivable people to forgive other unforgivable people. The text tells unlovable people to love other unlovable people. The audience for these commands, the audience are also the objects, the recipients of these commands. You see, speaking to these hearers, he says, you were liars. Now you speak the truth to each other. He says, you were thieves. Now be diligent and be generous to each other. You were toxic angry people. And it's the toxic people that he says, you must forgive toxic people. You must love toxic people. You must show kindness 
to toxic people. And so he says, be kind to one another, forgive one another, love one another, as God in Christ forgave you, as God in Christ is kind to you, as God in Christ loves you and gave himself for you. Have, have, have you ever been robbed? There's a lot of robbery from vehicles these days. Have you ever had things taken from you? Your property. But maybe not just your property. Have you ever been robbed of reputation? Have you ever had your, your freedom taken from you? In the gospel, Jesus had everything taken from him. They robbed him of his clothes. They took his dignity. They took away his comfort. They took his life. And in all of that theft, he was giving himself for us. And this, this, I think, is the hardest thing to believe about Christianity. It's not the complexities of the Trinity. It's not predestination and free will. It's not the problem of how a loving God can allow evil. This is the hardest thing, that Jesus could forgive and love people who are characterized by lying, by taking, by hatred, by quarreling. And as they took from him his own dignity and his life, Jesus gave to them, gave love and forgiveness. Consider what his dying words were to these people. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus loved people who had nothing to offer. We never gave to God. We never gave to God. We are the ones who are the takers, the thieves. Are those the kinds of people you love? Of course they're not. But in the gospel, Jesus loved liars and takers. He loved them so much that he gave himself for us. And he is the offering that pleases God. He is the way that God can forgive us. Forgiveness is always costly. That's just the way it works. Forgiveness isn't just, I just suddenly feel generous, so I'm going to forgive. Forgiveness is always costly. The wronged person often never receives repayment. And there's, just, there's some things that they just can't be repaid. They can't be repaid. But Jesus pays the cost. His life got charged for all of the evil that we racked up. And so is this kind of love, real? Does, does anyone, anywhere, have this kind of unbelievable love to the point of incurring cost for the other person? To the point of, of not just paying for the bill of the other person, to the point of adopting the other person? Yes, that, that love is real. He loved us. He says in verse 1, as loved Children, as beloved children, you were unrelated and utterly disposable. He made you heirs and family in love. And that's hard to believe. I want to close with this one last thing, and it's a word to those of you who struggle with self-hatred, self-loathing. Many of us live today with self-loathing. We're, we're disappointed with ourselves. We can't stand ourselves. And that means we find it impossible to believe that someone could love us. And that's an issue for us. We have a hard time receiving love, trusting love. The text closes with saying, Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Two things. Two things to consider if you're someone who hates yourself. First of all, the gospel says Jesus loves you. He loved you and he proved that love 
Not because you're worthy, but he proved it by giving up his worthiness. And his love, love makes you do crazy things. That's what he did. Jesus loves you, and he proved it. Secondly, the gospel says God was pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus. When Jesus spent his entire good life as a sacrifice for our bad lives, God was pleased with that. And the pleasure that God finds with Jesus is the pleasure that God finds in you if you believe because you're wrapped up in Jesus. You're united to Jesus. Jesus loves people who hate themselves. Let's pray. Lord, you have told us that you want us to know the magnitude, the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God in Christ. You want us to know it even though it's not fully knowable. We pray, Lord, that you would win us over, that you would convince us of your great love for us. We know that will change us. We know that will enable us to love with this love with which we've been loved. Lord, we, do we dare ask that you would give us opportunity to be kind, to forgive, and to love one another, and that you would give us grace to do so, that, that your love towards us would be so big and so real that we would love as we have been loved by you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.